0: Well, good morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, let me invite you to grab them and turn to Psalm 79. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use the blue one in front of you, uh, and you'll find Psalm 79 on page 490. Um, We are in the midst of our summer series uh, in the book of Psalms, and each week we're taking uh, a look at a psalm from each of these six thematic categories that all 150 psalms fall into Uh, And this Sunday, uh, we are going to dig into a psalm of lament. So if you've come in here cheery this morning, we're going to change that in the next few minutes. That's just right out of the gate. There's my warning. Um, But the reason why uh, we've been saying that we wanted to do a series in the psalms this summer is to really highlight this book and the treasure that it is for both public worship and then private devotion. Public worship and private um, devotion, that if rightly read, you will be a witness to how this book is going to make you think about God, wrestle with what's in the text, what's it tell you about God, his nature, his character. But it's also going to make you feel for God. The Psalms are poetry. Uh, really, up until a couple hundred years ago, the churches, their, their, their worship, corporate worship, and singing was singing Psalms word for word. Huge controversy that now we, we we can move beyond that to hymns, right? That we're and like this morning, be thou my vision. That thing's been around a long time. Beautiful song based upon the psalms and. It got me really thinking about how there's often this something I hear a lot, something I probably used to say a lot, uh, this distinction you hear in churches, uh, especially probably western, modern context, where you might hear somebody say, man, I love worship, I love singing and, and with my brothers and sisters, but I'm just not really a fan of preaching, like, really? Like, we can't come up with anything better than this? Like, 35, 40 minutes just watching a guy talk? Like, are we really still doing that? That's still the central part of our service? Like I'm just not really into that aspect of worship. And then you have the other side, where somebody might say, man, I love the preaching side. I love the intellectual aspect of opening the Word, hearing it explained, wrestling with it. But to be honest, the music does nothing for me. It's not my genre, uh, it's, it's not how I usually get stirred for music, and so I, uh, to be honest, I could do without it if I had to. Uh, we could just skip the songs, and I feel like I wouldn't miss a thing. And so you kind of have these two things that get uh, pitted against one another. You're, you're either more a fan of the preaching or you're more a fan of the music, um, but what Psalms does is it shows us those two things are not mutually exclusive. You, you can't separate them anymore. You can separate heads from tails and still have a coin. Right? Psalm strikes at this truth that it is for our edification that we both think about God and feel for God. We need to hear the word of God proclaimed, and we need to prepare our hearts for God's word and then respond to God's word with music and pray that our hearts are stirred. So if you just think about a worship service week in, week out, it's just normal. Maybe you've been doing this for years, decades, you know the drill. Um, The reason we sing before the sermon and after the sermon and so that our hearts would be prepared for God's word and that we could respond to God's word. It's not just that uh, we think this is the best way so we're just going to roll with it, right? That, that the music is meant to prepare and then respond to word of God proclaimed. And so that is one of the many reasons why we're taking the summer months to just dig into the Psalms. It's my prayer that God's going to do work on us this morning, in us this morning, and through us as a result of opening up his word together. So... As I mentioned, Psalm 79, it's a psalm of lament. Uh, This category is the largest in the book of Psalms. Somewhere around 40% of the 150 psalms are laments. This this kind of clear acknowledgement that following God is not just cupcakes and rainbows. right? It's not just this tube ride down the lazy river where there's just no cares in the world, follow Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. You won't have a care in the world. You're just going to ride home to glory. In fact, in many ways, Psalms shows us it's the direct opposite. That for the man or woman of God, for the believer, there are not just moments, but there might be whole seasons of life where you're going to struggle to come to grips with what you see happening all around you. Where where we're going to struggle with what we feel happening within us. And so the, the, the laments are composed for what some have called the dark night of the soul. Have you ever had a dark night? Some of you guys are thinking Batman. Get out of Batman. We're not talking Batman, all right? The, the, the dark night of the soul. The times when we feel um, confused, forsaken, um, paralyzed with fear. Maybe you're overtaken with anger, despair. And the fact that nearly half of the Psalms, like if you were just to open it and pick a random Psalm, over 40% of a chance that you're going to read a lament, that echoes that these kind of emotions that we experience, that God's message to us is not, hey, um, go deal with that on your own, get over it, and then come back. But he says, come to me when you're in the midst of these emotions, Come to me when you're in the midst of these laments. And as we will see this morning, uh, laments are not just dark the whole way through. Like, I promise, we're not going to be walking out just not wanting to talk to anybody today, all right? Like, you're going to hear some chatter. Why? Because laments will always lead you somewhere. They place the author on this search for solid ground they could find uh, a place to put their feet upon. And so Psalm 79 is a community, a lament. It's a lament on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. And so just fair warning, we're going deep this morning. We're going deep into Psalm 79. There is so much to consider and glean from. That doesn't mean it's going to be double the length, like breathe. Um, but we're going to go deep into it. And like, I don't know how it's going to go. Like, I might need to press the eject button halfway through. I don't know. We're going to find out together. But um Last week I said there's some psalms where you can provide no historical context at all and still really get the message from it. Uh, That that you don't really need to know when it was written or who it was written by. Um, But there are others, like Psalm 79, uh, you do know the occasion. And it actually becomes very helpful to understand the context as to why is he writing this? What what moment is he writing about? And so um, if you know your Old Testament well, uh, this will be a very quick review for you. But if you're kind of fuzzy on like Israel and like what was their role and like the arc of the Old Testament, like you're, you're pulling a story through or admittedly you're just like, man, I have no idea what's in the Old Testament or why it's even there or what's even happening. Um, here's the five minute recap, all right, to catch us up on the Old Testament. It's going to be way too fast, um, but yes, you're going to get a timeline, all right. You shouldn't have even asked. You always get a timeline if I'm up here. So, Real quick, 2000 BC, so we're talking over 4,000 years ago, God comes to a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he just comes to this man out of his grace and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you're going to dwell in the land of Canaan, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And through this nation, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And through this nation, the Messiah is going to come. Like a pretty big promise coming down on Abraham in 2000 B.C. Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who God renames Israel. Jacob gets renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons. It is a highly dysfunctional family. All right, we saw a bit of their story in our Joseph series a few months back, but these 12 sons would all end up in Egypt together with their families for over 400 years. And while they were there, they multiplied from a family of 70 to a nation of 1.5 million, like baby boom, for 400 years. And and, and these 12 families are broken up into 12 tribes named after uh, Jacob's sons. And so while that was initially good news, they got to go settle in Egypt. Ultimately, regime changes. Now this nation of Israel becomes slaves. They're enslaved as foreigners in this land of Egypt. So we fast forward to the next date, 1446 B.C. God comes to a man named Moses. And he says, Moses, you're going to be the one to go down to Egypt and by my power lead this nation home. So that leads to the Exodus, right? You've probably heard of the Exodus, the biggest event in the Old Testament. That God, by his grace, free his people out of bondage, set them on a path to go back up to the promised land, the land of Canaan. So they conquer the land, but after initial success, things start getting a little messy, Um, Israel struggles now being back in the promised land to remain faithful, to remain faithful to the covenant with the Lord that they've made. And the 12 tribes get really kind of disunified. There's a lot of issues, a lot of infighting. And so in 1000 BC, next date on your timeline, God raises up a man named David. And David becomes the first God-appointed king of Israel. And David kills it, right? Like literally just kills a lot of people, all right? Like he succeeds at uniting the 12 tribes. He conquers all of Israel's enemies. He's faithful to the Lord. He establishes a city named Jerusalem at the capital of this nation. And David has a son named Solomon. And Solomon, because of David's success, he enjoys really being the first king who could be a king in a time of peace. And so he is wildly wealthy He builds a temple in Jerusalem, a place where God's glory dwelled, where uh, sacrifices were made on behalf of the nation of Israel, where the people came and worshipped a beautiful temple in the capital of Jerusalem. And things are just going well for the nation of Israel until near the end of Solomon's reign. His own unfaithfulness starts to fracture his family, and his unfaithfulness carries on to the next generation so that when Solomon dies, all hell breaks loose. Especially within this royal family, goes out to the whole nation of Israel, and Israel has to split into uh, two nations because they just hate each other. Ten tribes to the north, which uh, retain the name Israel, and then two tribes to the south called Judah. They become two nations. They go to war with each other. They go to war with other kingdoms. All the while, all these 12 tribes are becoming unfaithful to the Lord from generation to generation, worshiping idols and gods of foreign nations. Everything just becomes a massive mess. So God starts to send prophets to these kingdoms to warn them. Men like Isaiah... Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, and others. And these men would come before these kings and these people, and they would remind Israel of their covenant with the Lord, and he would warn them, if you don't change your ways, God's going to act. He'll send in armies to destroy you and take your land. Huge warning. But Things like are kind of prosperous in Israel and Judah. They just love fighting. They love just worshiping however many gods they can worship. So they don't listen. They don't care. They don't think this is serious. And so as a result, the kingdom of Israel in the north falls in 722 B.C. to the hand of the Assyrians, an army from the east. Judah, they had a couple good kings that restored to the Lord, but ultimately they just kept falling back into the same generational sin They last a little bit longer, but ultimately in 586 B.C., a man named King Nebuchadnezzar leads his Babylonian army into Jerusalem, and he just destroys it. The few survivors that last are then brought into exile in Babylon, and it's in the shadow of the smoldering ashes of Jerusalem that Psalm 79 is written. A lament of an entire nation. And church, this is not meant to just be a history lesson for us this morning, but God has a word for us today in order to strengthen and edify us through Psalm 79. And we would all do well to lean in and listen. Three stages to Psalm 79, a complaint, a prayer, a praise. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. First, we see a complaint to the Lord. It's in a state of amazed horror that the psalmist writes what he sees. The land in which God's people have dwelled for nearly 900 years. Like America, what are we like, pushing 250? Maybe, maybe. 900 years they have been in this land and now they've been conquered and plundered and it's just amazed horror that he writes this and he just lays it out to the lord these pagans have come and they've ruined the holy house in the holy city within the holy land like it's over And he's bringing strong, specific complaints to the Lord out of confusion and despair and and shock. Like, he doesn't hold back from details. Like, kind of gruesome details. Like, Lord, our our bodies are scattered across the land so the beasts of the field are feeding on them. Our blood has been spilled like water. The landscape is covered in red just as a flood follows a heavy rain. And above all, We can't even bury our own. There's no one left to even bury them. In the ancient world and still many cultures today, specific burial rites are extremely important. There's a a process, there's a traditional way, a way these people have been doing it for years and years and centuries, and yet the ugly reality of war reveals that the enemy doesn't care about your burial rites. And notice the psalmist is not just lamenting that his people are suffering, but that God's name is being tarnished in the process. He writes, you notice the language he starts to use? He says, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've given the body of your servants to the birds. This is a dual complaint. Yes, we are suffering. Yes, we are. our bodies are strewn about. But Lord, your name is being defiled. Israel was created back in Genesis 12 with Abraham in order to be a witness for the world, to see how great God is. But their unfaithfulness has led to a world that ruthlessly mocks them, those who remain at least, as well as the God they serve. And it seems the nearer their neighbors are, the gladder they were to see the nation of Israel crumble. As a short aside, um, this is evidence that one of the ugliest results of a fallen world is when people take joy in the failure of others, especially those they are close to. In the New Testament, we see Paul press the church, like talking to just the church, to mourn with those who mourn, because even in the church, there's a tendency to rejoice when others mourn. Like this point was just wreaking havoc on my soul this past week, because listen, some of the most horrified recognitions of my own sin that I hate is when I take joy in the failure of someone else. And perhaps nothing more reminds me of my need and, and, and my need and gratitude for God's grace to cover my shortfalls is when I find myself rejoicing in somebody else failing, especially someone close to me. Due to jealousy, um, vanity, whatever else, it is a terrible, wicked thing when I see someone else mourn or fail and I'm taking secret pleasure in it. It is one of the ugliest fruits of a fallen world. It is wicked to do, and it's unbelievably hurtful when that happens to you. Where someone else sees your pain or your failures, and they're taking pleasure in it. This is what's happening to Israel at the deepest level. The nations see, and they're just taunting them for their failure. Yeah, God, the universe, look at your city and your capital and your holy temple. And this opening lament, among other things, it shows us today that it's not necessarily sinful to bring a complaint to God. It can be, but it's not always. And in the midst of raw emotion, in anger, in disappointment, in crushing defeat, it is not wrong for God's people to lay their complaints before the Lord. We see it all over Scripture. Abraham, when he saw his nephew Lot, was in trouble. Moses, when he was struggling to lead. And Job, when everything he had was taken from him. And Paul, when he asked God three times to take away his thorn of flesh. And Jesus himself, when he is strung out on the cross, crying, My God, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Letting the raw emotion flow from the dark night of the soul is not wrong. But the question arises, do our complaints, whether individually, whether as a community, do they drive us away from God or do they draw us closer to him? Even our most crushing complaints ought to drive us to Him, not from Him. And that's what we see next. Follow with me verses 5 through 12. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake." Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you, according to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. Following a complaint to the Lord we see a prayer laid before the Lord. And it starts, How long, O Lord? A question of desperation. A question that I am sure every one of you have asked at some point. And if not, just give it a little time. God, how long will this go on? Will there be no end? Notice this question doesn't doubt God and his work, if you think about it. On the contrary, it affirms that God is solely in control at all times. He alone is sovereign, and he alone knows how long something will last. And this just moves us into the deep end of the pool of thinking about God. Like, he can stop it. He can deliver, but for whatever reason, he's choosing not to at this point. That's deep lament. Like, if you are here this morning and you're going through a trial, you have a loved one that is going through a trial, maybe you've just begun, maybe it's been going on for a long time. Like, this question how long, Lord? becomes very familiar where we're just confused for now we see through a mirror dimly we can't trace the purpose we can't understand it we don't even want to understand it how long lord but our confusion based upon what we see does not need to dampen our faith in god's control That's what faith is. The the author of Hebrews defines it as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But I want to reel us back to Psalm 79. Because again, it's important to understand context. Because there are many trials and sufferings that are not a result of sin. that, That are not a result that you did something wrong and God is punishing you. Like we see throughout Scripture, men and women who suffered despite having done nothing wrong. Job is your big example in the Old Testament, and a man named Jesus is your example in the New Testament, where there is deep lament but they've done nothing wrong. But Psalm 79, that's not the case. The psalmist himself knows what is leading to this lament. Israel was unfaithful, generation after generation, for 500 years. God sent over a dozen prophets that just came and just warned about this, reminded them of their covenant, reminded them of their need to remain faithful to the Lord, and, and nothing changed. So God had to act. The right way then in this context to view the question, how long, O Lord, is not how long will you let us suffer, but rather how long Will you allow the nations to get away with destroying your name? We know this by the follow-up questions. He writes, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And and, and we're just told, like we we learn about God in the Psalms, right? You know what we just learned? God is a jealous God. And while human jealousy often is irrational and probably uncalled for, God's jealousy is perfectly holy. You know why God is passionate that he alone be worshipped by Israel? Because he's the only God. There's none other like him. There's no God on his level. Nothing compares. Everything else is hollow, fake, man-made creations that will lead them astray, who will overpromise and under-deliver. God is a jealous God because God is the only God. And it is for our good that he be jealous and that he acts when he sees unfaithfulness. Because if he doesn't, his name is tarnished and our joy is emptied. And then he just proceeds with this prayer. You get to verse 8 where the psalmist confirms what's the real issue here. Okay, all this complaint, all this gruesome lament, like what's the real issue here? The issue is not that God is unjust or not that God is cruel. The issue is that Israel was unfaithful. It's a community lament over generational sin that has plagued this nation for too long. Like listen, Israel did not have a bad week. It wasn't a bad decision that led to just the quick anger of God burning and the destruction of his temple in Jerusalem. It was 500 years of breaking the covenant. And notice the psalmist, he's not claiming innocence on the behalf of Israel. He's not saying, listen, we weren't that bad to deserve this. He's not saying this is unworthy but rather he is throwing himself fully on the grace and mercy of God for deliverance and atonement for their sin. God, the lights are about to go out. The exiles have been taken into Babylon. Only ashes remain in Jerusalem. It's the realization that the grace and mercy of God is all Israel has. And yet, through confession and repentance, it is firm confidence that the grace and mercy of God is all Israel needs confession, repentance, deliverance. That's the path of Psalm 79. That's the path for every person in the history of the world to be reconciled to God. Confession, repentance, deliverance. But here's the most important part. If you've dialed out, dial back in right now for the next few minutes. Here's the most important part of Psalm 79 is that he wants it in part for relief of his own people. Like he sees people suffering, goes, yes, I want this suffering to stop. But even more so, he wants it to stop for the honoring of God's own glory and name. Like don't miss this. Help us, O God, of our salvation, he writes, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. It is good news when God acts primarily for his own name's sake. It is good news when God primarily acts for his own name's sake, and the evidence of this is all over your Bible. That God does all things for his glory, not our glory. We can't handle glory. We're not God. And God being zealous for his own glory is the best possible news for his people. It's the only reason we have a shot. And personally, seeing this point traced through the scriptures was a light bulb moment for me. At the moment God revealed this to me by his word and good teaching, I couldn't stop seeing it all over the word as I read it. So I want to just give you a glimpse of this. Like we would be here hours if I showed every scripture that shows this, but I just want to give you a glimpse of the overwhelming evidence of how God working primarily for his own name's sake is all over the Bible. All right, I'm putting Joe to the test on the computer today. We're going rapid fire. All right. First, God created us for his glory, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the seas at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. God promised not to forsake Israel despite their rebellion for his glory. 1 Samuel twelve twenty and 22. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. After the events that we're reading in Psalm 79, God promises to restore Israel once again for his glory. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. Jesus comes into the world and in his teaching, he says that our lives should be lived in order to lead others to God's glory. Matthew five sixteen, In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus endured the cross for God's glory, John 12, 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And finally, Paul says to the church that we have been saved. Why? For God's glory. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name and that is good news for us. And once you see it in his word, you can't miss it from there on out. You can't get around it. That's why the psalmist, in the midst of this prayer, after his complaint, all he can say is, Lord, act on the behalf of your namesake, for your glory. And if you're sitting here and you're reading that and you're hearing this and you're going, man, that makes God look weak. That makes God look vain and and selfish, Man, I love you, but you don't understand the power and majesty of God's glory. It is the blazing center of everything there is. And it is the most loving thing he can do for his creation because he's God and his glory is supreme. Let's quickly see the third stage in the final verse of Psalm 79, verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. In this deep psalm of lament, we've seen a complaint to the Lord. We've seen a prayer laid before the Lord. And now we see a praise of the Lord. Even in the deep darkness of the soul, even in lament, we can still praise Him by faith. And it might be a praise this morning with tears streaming down our faces, but we will still praise Him. Because if you notice, the prayer doesn't get answered in this psalm, it ends open ended. And we know from the history of the Old Testament that deliverance will not come to this nation for another 70 years. But in the midst of a complaint that pressed him deep into the Lord with a prayer, out came the pledge, but still I will praise you. And this community lament turns into a community pledge to be faithful to the Lord in all circumstances. And do you see how he said it? He said, you know what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen generation after generation. Because we've had 500 years of generational sin and now we are going to pledge to make a covenant with the Lord and it's going to continue generation after generation. And church, the church has been faithful to this generation after generation and here we are today. But still, I will praise Him. A pledge to trust in the fulfillment of His promise to not forsake His people. Despite what we may see we cling to that which we know. So we've covered a lot this morning with this psalm. There's a lot in here, a lot I couldn't even get to. And hopefully, as we navigated it, there's one or two things that spoke to you. But if your head is swirling, because this happens to me often, and you're wondering, okay, so what? Thank you for ruining my Sunday, all right? like, what, like what, What's the main takeaway here? Like, what's the reason for understanding all of this in 2017? Here it is. It is my theological, theological conviction that Scripture tells us that the church is the new Israel. That there's a new covenant instated by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And where God's people was once a single nation through Israel is now, through Christ, a people from all nations across the world through the church. And the church today, like Israel was before Christ came, is a witness to the world. The chosen people through which God's name gets the glory and he is seen as great And so the lesson for the church today, the lesson for Grace Church today is not that we shouldn't lament the things we see and experience. We will always be lamenting. The message is not stop lamenting, but rather in the midst of your laments, let us be sure that those complaints drive us to the Lord in prayer and trust that our prayer will lead us to praise him. Nowhere outside the message of the Bible does that make any sense. The world's going to see you as crazy where you can say with confidence, I am hurting and yet I am praising. But still I will praise you And, church, we would do well to echo this pledge to praise God in all circumstances, to throw ourselves completely on His grace and His mercy for the purpose of carrying out our mission for His name's sake. This is why our vision at grace is what it is that we exist to glorify God. How could that not be our primary vision after seeing what's all over the Bible? And How are you going to do that, little church in Ridgewood? How are you going to do that, glorify the God of the universe? By making disciples of all nations through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. This is why we exist, and this is why we do what we do. And so this is a plea for all of us to dial in and play our part well. However, God has placed us in this church to serve and pour ourselves out for the body and for our body's mission, to see this as the greatest purpose of our lives, to give it, to dig in and give it our all for his name's sake. Like how awesome is God that he allows us to live for the glory of his name? Come, let us worship. Let's pray.